Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, Father, as we come to you tonight, we come with gratitude that we have the ability and the freedom to have a weekly rhythm of coming together to have our hearts refreshed, to find some rest that goes deeper than just physical rest, but to be able to look for rest for our hearts and for our souls. And I pray tonight that you would move by your spirit to bring that kind of refreshment. That for those that have come here weary and burdened, feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders, that you would help them to find rest in Christ and fill us with your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we are finishing up. This is the third week and our final week in a short series that we've covered called Work Matters. We've been looking at vocation and work and the importance of work. And so we began a couple weeks ago by looking at God's design for work, that what he has done and what we see God doing in creation. And so we see three things. God saw a formless and empty space. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. And so God formed and filled and cultivated his creation and then called us as those who bear his image and likeness, to join him in that work, forming and filling and cultivating this world. So then last week, we looked at what it means to work for the common good. Seeing that the gospel and the work that God has done for us ultimately in Christ, but as he continues to work in his world, is um, that we get to join him in that work, whatever our career field is. And so joining God in his work isn't limited to church work and church vocations, but extends into every career field that we work in. And so tonight, as we've been talking about work, now we come to a week that, frankly, most of you probably need most. Tonight we're going to talk about rest. And some of you desperately need rest. Some of you dragged yourself here tonight, wish you were home. Some of you have come tonight hoping that you can find some rest. But many of you have come tonight tired, feeling worn out, feeling ground down, especially as we get into the summer months. And in that, in that grind of life, it's hard sometimes to find refreshment, to find actual rest. This isn't a problem that is only recognized by the church either. There's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's endemic, it's a problem across the board in, in our city and, broad, and more broadly culturally. The Harvard Business Review wrote an article recently. Um, it's not productivity. It was, this was an article about why do men work so many hours, looking at, why, looking at men who work more than 50 hours a week. Now, I say that, and some of you are like, God, I would kill to work only 50 hours a week. Um, but this article is looking at that in particular. Why, would, why are men in particular driven to that? And it says it's not productivity, and it's not innovation. It's identity. If you've lived a life where holidays are a nuisance, where you've missed your favorite uncle's funeral, your children's childhoods, in a culture that, that conflates manly heroism with long hours, it's going to take more than a few regressions to convince you it wasn't really necessary, after all, for your work to devour you. The New York Times picked up on this in an article, The Busy Trap, saying, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, and in demand every hour of the day. Now, we know that, right? 
I think most of us are prone to wear busyness as a badge of honor, especially in this city. Like, if people ask you, hey, how are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm busy. That, that's, not, that's not a thing. Like, that, is, that doesn't actually say anything about how you're doing. That, saying, oh, I'm busy. Like, what do you mean by that? Are you saying I'm tired? Are you saying I'm exhausted? Are you saying I wish I wasn't as busy? Often, I think what we're saying is, I'm really important. <laughs> it's, it is. It's saying, my life isn't trivial. I am booked and I just can't even keep up with the demands placed on me. This was picked up also, by, again, by the Harvard Business Review, saying organizations are demanding ever higher performance from their workforces. People are trying to comply, but the usual method, putting in longer hours, has backfired. They're getting exhausted, disengaged, and sick, and they're de defecting to healthier job environments. Longer days at the office don't work because time is a limited resource. The Atlantic picked this up as well, and in The Atlantic it was written, most Americans have a dull sense that their lives are fundamentally off, because for the most part, they are. They hate their lives, but, but they get, to get through the day, besides taking Prozac and consulting their cell phone every two minutes, some of you just felt it buzz in a phantom ring, didn't you? I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> Uh, besides taking Prozac and consulting their cell phone every two minutes, they talk themselves into believing that they want to be doing what they're doing. This is probably the major source of illness in our culture, whether physical or mental. So the Atlantic, the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review have picked up on this, that we are a culture overall that is overworked and obsessed with our work to a level that is actually causing problems in our health and our ability to get through life. Now, mo many of you, some of you are reading this and thinking, gosh, that feels extreme. Some of you are hearing those things and you're like, that feels like they're reading my mind. You feel, you feel that weight. And some of you have come here exhausted tonight, weighed down, weary, feeling like you're just being, being ground down. And it's, it happens in a, all across the board. So physically, some of you are just physically tired right now. Like that, and and you, you're not sleeping enough, and you're not sleeping well because anxiety is keeping you up. Or those of you that have babies, like no, the one thing that I feel like was the biggest surprise of becoming a parent and having a kid was the fact that I never would have an un uninterrupted night of sleep again. Um, if you don't have kids, that's what you would have to look forward to. Um, they do sleep eventually, but when they're little, it's hard to believe that. And the toll of ongoing night after night of not getting good sleep is exhausting. You can't sustain it. Some of you have come in mentally and intellectually tired. We have a limited capacity for creativity. And some, and some of you haven't allowed for an ebb and flow in your life, and so you're being pressured to produce material and content and creative output when you're, you're exhausted. You've got nothing left. And so coherent thought is even difficult to put together. Some of you have come in tonight emotionally exhausted, that there are wounds and scars deep inside of you that you, have, that you know are still there, that are still painful, and, it's, and, and those scars of the past are an emotional drain that make it so that you don't have what my counselors call emotional elasticity. You lose the ability to bounce back when stress comes in. You lose the ability to bounce back when, when you go through something hard. 
Some of you are socially exhausted. Whether you're introverted or extroverted, this can happen, where you just get tired of having to prop up a facade in relationships, or morally exhausted. By, some of you are morally exhausted by trying to consistently do the right thing and the good thing, or live out a Christian life and faith in a place that, your workplace, that doesn't welcome that. Or some of you are morally exhausted because you know that there's things that you're doing wrong and it's exhausting to live a lie. All of those can contribute to exhaustion that gets into the depths of our souls and a weariness that's there, like in a bone tired. And so what do we do when we get tired like that? We try to escape. We try to numb ourselves. And so we turn to all kinds of things to, to do that, for, to, and, and, and things that we think will satisfy us, at least for a moment, hoping that that'll get somewhere deeper, but it never gets to the depth of our anxiety and our weariness and our insecurity. And so in this, we, the hope that I have tonight is that if you've come here weary, if you've come here tired tonight, then there's actually hope for, it, for all of us. And church, I've got to tell you, tonight, I'm pretty tired. Like, I'm, I'm weary. And if you've come here tired tonight, I'm, I'm in this with you. And the things I'm preaching, I'm trying to find hope in myself um, many of us have come here beaten and broken, longing for rest that just doesn't seem to come. And so we're gonna, this is what we're going to do tonight. Um, we're going to end up landing in Matthew chapter 11. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn it to a place where we're going to land eventually, that's where we will land. But before we get to Matthew 11, I want to look at, we're going to look at a biblical survey of trying to understand what is rest biblically, what is the idea of Sabbath biblically. And so we're going to look at the whole of the Bible and see how the concept of Sabbath is woven through like a thread in this redemptive storyline in Scripture that we have. And so we're going to start there. Then we're going to look at how Jesus in particular looked at the issue of rest and what he calls us to. And once we've seen that, what the biblical concept of Sabbath is and what Jesus calls us to, then we'll be able to say, okay, what does it mean, what does it look like in our lives and how do we pursue actually living in that Sabbath rest that Jesus calls us toward? And so that's where we're headed tonight. Um, we're we're going to hit kind of a whirlwind of passages that are going to hit the screen. And, um, and so you can try to turn with me or they'll be up. And, but we're going to walk through from beginning to end um, through the whole Bible probably in the next like eight to 10 minutes. So you ready? <laughs> this is gonna be fun. All right, so we rooted work in creation that God created. Remember, he formed, filled, and cultivated his creation. Calls us as those who bear his image and likeness to do the same, to form, fill, and cultivate. But in the beginning, there's also a concept of rest that is built into the creation narrative. And so in Genesis chapter two, it's describing the seven days of creation. And remember, this is a framework. It's a poem that was written showing the first three days, God formed what was formless. The second three days, he filled what was empty. And now we get to the seventh day, and it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work he had done in creation. And so the whole cosmos is, is created by God, and then in the seventh day, there's rest. Now, if you read the first six days in this poem of creation, it ends with, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, and so on. And so do you notice that in the seventh day, it doesn't end? And a lot of theologians have pulled this theme out to say the seventh day was never intended to end. 
Human beings were created to exist in God's presence in a state of rest with him. We were created to be in his presence for, for, and, and to experience life that way and in a state of rest in God's presence. That, that's what Eden was about, was a garden, a place that God had made that was a sanctuary for his presence to be with his people. But human beings chose to rebel against him, to disobey him, to walk away from him. And so the consequence of our sin was to be removed from God's rest, to be taken out of that place and out of his direct presence and direct interaction with his presence. And so after that, what we get into following that is the rest of the story of the biblical storyline is getting back to the seventh day. It's getting back to the way we were designed to live and back to this state of rest. And so we see this as, as God is forming a people for himself in the Israelites, and he called them out of Egypt, and he invited them to a relationship and said, you will be my people, and I'll be your God. And he, it was essentially a marriage proposal between God and the nation of Israel at that time, the, the people of Israel. And they, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and as he came back down, the elders of the people accepted God's proposal and said, yes, we want this. And then God gave, start, began giving the law to them. And the law started with Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. One of those commandments was this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is, the, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy." So here, in the Ten Commandments, the idea of Sabbath was, it was tied to God's creative work, and, the, and his people were called. He said, this is what it looks like to be my people. On the seventh day, you'll rest from the work you normally do. You'll do something different on the seventh day. And so that's tied to, because this is regaining, saying you're going to invest one day of your week. And this is an agrarian society. These are people that work, work fields and work with livestock. And he's saying you're going to take one day a week and shift away from your normal work and focus on the relationship with God and on resting in his presence. This is all, and so then it's, it's picked up again in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so Deuteronomy, it's not just tied to creation, but the idea of Sabbath is also tied to liberation. God is saying, I've saved you. He's saying, I brought you out of slavery. I brought you to a place of freedom. And because of that, you're going to remember my liberating work in your people and in your lives, and you're going to celebrate that by setting aside a Sabbath day. And so this was the, the pattern for the people of God. And then it, they also looked ahead to a rest that wasn't given to them by Moses. In Psalm chapter 95, this is brought out, which if we can put that up, I'm not going to take time to read this whole thing, but this is looking to the point that psalmist is calling us um, to look to a point 
that the people had been brought out of Egypt, they had been given God's law, and as they were headed to the promised land, they came up to the promised land and sent spies in to check out the cities and the people that were the inhabitants of that land, to check out what their next step was. The spies came back and said, it is too scary. The people are too big. We should not go in. And they listened. And so they didn't follow God's call to go into the promised land. And so what we see here is that moment. He's saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and as on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And so for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, the promised land was looked at as a place of rest a place where God's people would be in his presence with his provision, a land flowing with milk and honey where they would be provided for by their God. And so from, the, from day seven, this was the story of, of the, the fall of humanity and the removal of, that we had from God's rest. And now the pursuit, as God was saying, here's how to rest again. Set aside a day to remember creation and remember that God is the one who's powerful and sovereign. Set aside a day to remember that your emancipation, your liberation, that God is the one who saves. And, and now he, the, this idea of the promised land was you're going to step back into God's rest. And the intention of the old covenant and God setting aside a Sabbath day wasn't just to have a day of inactivity. And this is something essential for us to understand. It was never, the idea of Sabbath was never set aside a day to only sleep. Now, listen, let me just give a disclaimer right now that for some of you, who have been driving yourselves really hard to the point that you have compromised sleep and rest and physical rhythms that God has created you with a need for, you, you need to hear, God created you with a need to sleep so that you could be reminded that you are not infinite. He, remi- he gave you a need to sleep so that you would have to actually shut down for a while and see that the world will not fall apart without you. And for some of you, the most holy thing you can do would be to leave here and go straight to bed and sleep well. Within that, I do think there's a reaction sometimes where what we think rest is, is we think rest is a removal from all activity, it's inactivity, or even self-indulgence. That isn't what the Sabbath was about. The Sabbath, as established by God in the Old Covenant, was one day to set aside for the sake of physical renewal and for the sake of worship, for people to have their focus shifted. And it wasn't a cessation of activity, but it was a shift in activity. And it was it, the best way to understand the way the Sabbath was intended was this was a weekly reminder of God's covenant love for his people and a weekly celebration feast. That's what was accomplished on the Sabbath. It was one day a week for them to step back from the work they normally do and be reminded God loves us. He made this place. He's sovereign over it. He's our savior. He's the one who, who, in whom our ultimate rest is found. And we set aside a day to remember that and to celebrate that. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we do see things that are done on the Sabbath. There are military campaigns that didn't shut down just because it was the Sabbath day. Marriage feasts that were celebrated on Sabbath days, dedication feasts for the temple, um, visiting prophets and men of God was done on the Sabbath. The, the guards stayed up on the Sabbath. They still guarded the gates, and they didn't stop doing their duty because it was the Sabbath day. 
They, there, were, there was showbread maintained in the temple and sacrifices offered and duties of priests and Levites actually peaked on the Sabbath day. And so there were all kinds of activities still done on the Sabbath, but the heartbeat of the Sabbath was to say, set aside this day for your souls to be renewed and restored because that's what's going to lead you to actual rest. Now what happened was, People, as, as they applied the concept of Sabbath, it got out of hand and became a religious practice that went well beyond what was originally intended. In Jewish life, there's a work called the Halakha that is the authoritative, authoritative rabbinic teaching on the Torah. And that work took the Torah and tried to define what are the commandments we need to fulfill in the Torah. How many commandments do you think they found in the Torah? No guesses. 600. You're really close. 613. You guys got it? Well done. <laughs> All right. Uh, that might be the first time I've ever had anybody that actually would have known that number. So 613 commandments found in the Torah, and that included Sabbath regulations and practices on what could or could not be done. And it got to the point where there were even restrictions on like the number of steps that you could take on the Sabbath day. And so by the time Jesus came, there were all kinds of ideas of what could and could not be done on the Sabbath that didn't actually have a direct connection to God's original design for it. This is still true today. It is still true today that there are Sabbatarian practices, even among Christians, where we have taken the, a good concept of saying, set aside a day for, for the sake of the renewal and restoration of our hearts to focus on God and remove ourselves from the normal work we do, and it's been taken from that to be an extent that it really is a, just a legalistic, moralistic way to try to earn our righteousness, and that, amazingly, will leave you feeling more exhausted than restful. And so within this, when Jesus came, he faced some of this from the religious leaders and had some backlash from religious leaders. And we see one of these, this happened frequently for him, but one of these happens in Luke chapter 6. It says, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, so, we've got this guy nailed down. Look at this. His disciples are harvesting grain on the Sabbath by rubbing some heads of grain between their hands. And so they, they think they've got him. And Jesus answered, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus, we know, never violated God's law. He lived a sinless life, the only person to ever live a sinless life as God in the flesh. He understood the application of the teachings of the time, but he was unwilling to be religiously boxed in to regulations and laws that didn't actually have to do with sin. And so his response to them is to cite a story from 1 Samuel 21. We don't have time to read tonight, but if you want to go check it out, you can go read about how David did exactly what Jesus says here. And the Pharisees, these teachers, were put in on the spot because if they would have defended their own legalistic practices of the Sabbath, they would have had to condemn King David and the priesthood of that time. Or they had to back off. And so Jesus corrects them, and then the very next thing that happens in Luke 6 is on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and there was a man whose right hand was withered, and he healed the man. And they got mad at him for healing a man on the Sabbath. 
And so here, there's a reason Jesus did what he did. Jesus was a subversive teacher and leader. And so as he was confronted by the Pharisees over something as minor as his disciples rubbing some grain in their hands to eat, he then chose to go back to the same place on another Sabbath intentionally to make a show of things to them and to perform a healing on the Sabbath. And there were multiple times that we hear about Jesus healing on the Sabbath and and leaders condemning him for freeing somebody from the bondage they had to a sickness. In this case, in Luke 6, a man with a withered hand, Jesus is freeing him from that and, and, and being condemned by the religious leaders for it. When what we see in the Old Testament text in, back in Deuteronomy 5 is that the Sabbath exists to celebrate God's liberating work in our lives. So what could be more celebratory and more restful than making somebody more whole and breathing in eternity into their physical bodies through healing? Jesus was Lord, is Lord of the Sabbath. He was bringing God's new work that couldn't be held in by the old covenant, but he came to fulfill it, not to cancel it out. Now, there remains something for us. In Hebrews chapter 4, it goes on to say there's something that we can still look ahead to. In Hebrews chapter 4, it quotes that Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. But it goes on to say, if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua was the one that led the Hebrew people into the land where they were supposed to find rest. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God has. And so in Hebrews, there's this anticipation. There's still something that we are waiting for. None of us has experienced the fullness of rest in the way we've been designed to. And remember, rest isn't, we can't get there just through inactivity. We can't get there through mere self-indulgence. And so what rest are we still waiting for? What is it that we're still looking ahead to? What is it that Jesus was pointing to, even in his life and in his ministry and his healing work? What we're looking ahead to, we read about in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This portrait that we get in Revelation 21 is a restoration of the seventh day. The dwelling place of God is again with human beings. Creation restored as God's temple. And we are invited to re-enter his rest and exist forever in the seventh day. There's no need for a temple in the new heavens and the new earth because God dwells once again with the people he loves and created. And the guarantee that we have that we can join God in that restored and renewed creation only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes through that he had to come to make this place new. He had to come and lay himself down. And we read in Romans 8 that all of creation groans and longs for the day of its redemption, that it will join with the sons and daughters of the king as we are renewed and restored. And that only happened as Christ came and paid the penalty for our sin 
through his death on the cross and was raised from death to life, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he has promised he will return and bring this to bear in its fullness. And so this is the biblical theology of Sabbath. This is how it all fits together, a biblical theology of what real rest is. The problem for us is we're simply not resting. And if we're trying to get there on our own, we never will. God created us to exist in a state of rest, and and to not rest is, is to say that we're more important than God is and that we need to be constantly on the go all the time. You see, at its core, the issue of rest or a lack of rest in our lives gets to, at its core to an issue of worship. Even for those of you that are here that aren't religious, it's a worship issue. You need to understand, all of us worships something. All of us pursues something as our ultimate goal, as the ultimate good. That is an issue of worship. And so the only thing that changes person to person and moment to moment is the object of our worship, the thing that our hearts are yearning for. And so if we're consumed by our work, but, but then go make major changes to cut back, if I was to come in tonight and say, here are the six things you need to do this week to find rest, enough of you are type A enough that you would take careful notes and tomorrow morning implement at least four of those six things. By Thursday, you'd finish the list. And you know what would happen is you'd become so confident of your list that you would then, your list would consume you and finding that rest would consume you and it would lead you right back to the same place you're at now of feeling exhausted because you'd realize that self-indulgence, whether it's things that are destructive or whether it's self-indulgence in your own list making, can both destroy you. You'll never get rest because you'll be caught chasing the next thing, the next person, the next task list, the next approach, the next philosophy, the next, in the next book, the next method, the next whatever it is, you'll be chasing whatever is next so that you're thinking that finally you'll find the thing that satisfies you. Listen, there's only one way your soul can be satisfied. You were created with a need, with a longing for God's presence in your life. And that can only come through Jesus Christ. So for some of you, the call tonight is to stop chasing other things. You find satisfaction and real hope and real joy in him. Now, even those of you here tonight who follow Jesus still struggle with this, though. And even as I'm saying that, some of you are thinking, gosh, I know I'm supposed to be joyful, but I am not. I know I'm supposed to feel secure, but I do not. I am racked with insecurity and doubt. I know I'm not supposed to worry, but I'm anxious like, this, I know that you're out here, that some of, some of you, like, you read Jesus' words when he says, don't be anxious about anything, and you go, oh, shoot, now I'm breaking that commandment because I'm anxious, and you get more anxious about yourself, and you don't even go on to read that he's saying, don't be anxious, it's not a command that you then should feel guilty about, he's saying, don't be anxious, look at how God cares, even for sparrows and for the birds, for the birds of the air and for the flowers of the field, he loves you and he cares for you, but even that racks you with more anxiety, and so what do we do to get to rest? What does it mean to really find rest? Self-indulgence can't give it to us. More religion can't give it to us because we'll just drive ourselves with heavier burdens. That's actually something that Jesus goes after as well. 
in Matthew chapter 23, he talks about how religion can't free us and can't on itself, that all it does is weighs us down more. He said, the, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger." And so here, Jesus is saying, this is the result of all religion that we pursue just as an end in itself, is that we try to earn our way into our righteousness, and that will backfire on us because all it does is it ties up heavier burdens on our shoulders because now we're bearing the burden of trying to earn our way into God's favor, and that will crush every single one of us. And so this is what you need to hear tonight, is in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So saying, this is how you get to God, is through Jesus. That was his audacious claim. But listen, hear these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Church, listen to these words again. Let these wash over you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't here say, come to me, all of you who have figured this out. He doesn't say, come to me, those of you who are, who are holy and righteous. He doesn't say, come to me, those of you who have cleaned your, up your act. Come to me, those of you who have earned the right position or status. The requirement that he has to come to him is that we're weary and heavy laden. That we're weary and feel a crushing weight on our chests. And the promise that he gives is that he'll give us rest. Jesus uses the imagery of a yoke here. I don't think most of us don't encounter yokes on our on our day to day basis. Um, this is talking about oxen, not eggs, and so totally different yoke and a terrible dad joke. <laughs> um, it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> uh, like puns are just going to the yokes on you. Um, <laughs> oh, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. All right, so. Um, the yoke that he's talking about is that when oxen were being used to pull the plows in the fields, they would put this carved wooden bar across the necks of two oxen. So that way, as the oxen, this is one of the only illustrations I feel like physically capable of showing. <laughs> it's, and the oxen would pull together, and that way, they wouldn't go different directions, and they would pull in the same direction. It would help you to steer the oxen because it went across their necks, it joined them together. And so what Jesus is using this language of a yoke here, this is important to us because it's a vivid and graphic image that I, I hope you can get to right now. I don't know what it is that you're yoked to 
you in your life that is causing you to be as exhausted as you are, but for every one of us, there is something that we are either relying on to pull us through to where we want to go, or something that we feel like we're stuck with and trudging ahead, dragging it as we go. And whatever it is that we are yoked to, if it's not Jesus, then we are going to drive ourselves to exhaustion, and it cannot bring us into God's rest. Last week, we talked about bottom lines in work, that understanding the bottom line of your job helps you to understand what it means to do good work in that field. And th that's true in our lives, too. And so this is true whether we talk about an actual job or whether this is relationship or this is true if you're a stay-at-home parent that you can become yoked to your perfection as a parent. It's true if in, in, in your workplace that it, it's really a question of what are you living for? What do you, what would, what is the, when you, when you stop and dream about if, if I could just get this, then I could be satisfied. What is it? What is the this? What are you most scared of losing? What is it that if you lost it, you're not sure if you would want to go on with your life? That's, that's, these are the kinds of questions that begin to get at, what, at, the, at the actual idols of our soul, the actual location of our worship. What is it you're yoked to that you're stuck at, that's driving you, that you're stuck with, and you can even get to the point of feeling enslaved by it? If you're yoked to your work, you will never get out of the busyness trap. You will never have worked enough hours. Vacation will always ha bring twinges of guilt. It's, it's that, that one of those quotes that we read early on saying that, that if, you've, you know, if you've missed your favorite uncle's funeral and missed your children's childhoods and still don't feel like you've worked enough, and some of you are actively living that life right now. There's never enough self-sacrifice then you will sacrifice everything else in your life to achieve what you want to in your career. If that's you, you will never achieve rest and satisfaction through your work. You'll never reach a point where you're able to kick back the way that you think you are. And we are all yoked to something. For many of us, it is our jobs. That's, that's, these little devices have revealed that maybe more than anything else. Like I, I have notifications right now, and I'm on Do Not Disturb, and this just makes my heart sink. Like, there are times when I want to just throw this thing in the river, and I know that I couldn't actually do it. Like, I would jump in after it. Like, some of you, like, again, I, I know I'm not the only one get, that gets those phantom buzzes on my thigh where, I, where my phone usually sits. I had somebody in the morning service today come up to me afterward and say, that happened to me when I was in my bathrobe out of the shower this morning. <laughs> and I knew it couldn't be my phone because my phone was in a different room. This is what happens when you're at a restaurant. And, like, I don't remember the last time I turned my ringer on on my phone. But if you're in a restaurant and one person's phone rings, you can watch every single person within a radius that can actually hear it grab their phone and immediately look at it. And even though they know it's not their phone, because now our thumbprints log us in, then all of a sudden you're doing something else on it. Like it's a, the, the, the power that these little things have over us is incredible. And, 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 and it shows the level of anxiety and insecurity that we have. No matter who you are, no matter what you're yoked to, no matter what you think you've done, good or bad, though, you need to hear Jesus' call tonight. He's saying, come to me. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, 
I will give you rest. Bring all of your weariness, bring all of your woundedness, bring all of your baggage and bring it to him. Lay it at his feet and take his yoke upon you. Get linked up with Jesus and let him carry the load. Because when he went to the cross, he went in our place for our sin. If we link ourselves to Jesus, then we're linking ourselves up with the one who looked at the need for our, our righteousness to be accomplished and our rest in eternity in God's presence to be secured. And on the cross, he said to God, it is finished. The work is done. And so if we take Jesus' yoke upon us, that is the only chance that we actually can get the rest that we need. Because the work is finished. If you're tired tonight, it could be because you're yoked to something other than Jesus. And only he can bring rest for your soul. Now within that then, if we, are, if we do turn to Jesus and we, we seek out that kind of rest at a soul level, it can start to impact everything else in our lives. And so let's get practical now. So we've seen a biblical theology of rest. We've seen how Jesus redefines Sabbath rest for us. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that we have the true freedom, to, we have true rest, and that frees us to rest in our lives. So within this, just briefly, most of the times the things we pursue that we think are going to satisfy and bring us rest, that we think are going to, they're going to bring us, it really end up just numbing us and being escapes, don't actually make us feel more rested, and they, make us, they leave us feeling more drained. And so sometimes we think, you know what, I'm really tired and I'm, so, I'm just going to have a complete empty day. Or if you're not at that level, you might just go, I'm going to give myself 15 minutes. <laughs> but if you, if you leave yourself massive amounts of time with nothing scheduled in them, with no activity in them, you don't always leave feeling more rested. At times, that can actually leave you feeling more drained and more, because you don't know what you're doing with yourself. It's not actually restorative time and work. There are other times when we actually try to fill that time with things that pursuits that just aren't going to satisfy. And so it could be overindulgence in good food or good drink, gifts that God has given us to enjoy, but when we turn to them for satisfaction, they never will. We are so spoiled by restaurants in this town. And you can go and have some of the finest meals that exist in the world, and then the more you have them, the more you get numbed to it, and you just go, meh. It won't give you rest in your soul. It could be relational indulgences. It could be entertainment that numbs you. Let's face none of us actually feels good when we've fallen down the Netflix rabbit hole. Like, you know, there's some time, yes, entertainment can be good, but you indulge that enough, and you all of a sudden look back, and you're like, I don't know where those hours and hours went. You don't leave that feeling, like, I leave those moments feeling intense shame. It could be shopping and spending. It could be sex and, and physical indulgence with lust. But listen to these words from C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. This is something you don't hear preached in churches often enough. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Jesus offers you a holiday at the sea. He offers you rest in God's presence for eternity. If you can begin to trust that and place your hope in that, it's going to bring a level of rest in your soul that nothing else can. It'll allow you to believe that you don't have to check your email 19 hours a day because you'll be able to admit, I'm just not that important. And people just don't need to get a hold of me that rapidly. 
Your identity won't be in your work, but in Christ. You'll be freed to actually, actually lo- love people around you if you believe that you have a loving Father who is sovereign over all things. And so our health, our, our health in all of those areas we talked about, a physical and emotional and intellectual and social and moral health, all have an impact on our soul, but it works even more powerfully in reverse that, that our spiritual state will have an impact into the health of our lives. And so in this, one practical thing too. So what we said earlier, rest, in, even in the Sabbath, was never intended by God to be mere inactivity. It's a rest, it's, it, even the word we use, recreation, is, is indicative of something, that there's a recreative aspect of what real restorative rest does for us. It brings our souls to a place of rest and restores something beautiful within us. Um, somebody said to me a while back in my life, and, and this is something that stood true for me, that I honestly, I wish I practiced more. I've been in a bad season of not living very healthy, and so that's why I'm tired tonight. And, but, it, but when I'm in a good season, this is true for me, is that if you work physically with your hands, if you, if, you're, if you do manual labor for your work, then it is good for you to rest by pursuing other things and other activities like intellectual and emotional activities, reading, studying, reading some good theology, engaging in conversations with people, doing things that engage different aspects than the active work you do. If you spend most of your work life doing intellectual exercise, sitting at a desk, doing, working in creativity or working in ideas, then in order to actually feel rested, you're going to most feel rested by doing something physically that changes your pace, but a different activity that can recreate something within you. So this is true of me. I'm a pastor. I don't know if this will come as a shock to you, but most of my job is not manual labor. There's not a lot to do with my hands. And when I meet, most of my job is like I study and I read a lot and um, probably spend way too much time online, and I also meet people all the time, and so I'll meet, meet people, and often that's over meals, so it's actually totally hazardous to my health because I have meetings over meals with people, and then like people invite us over for dinner, and I don't want to be like, sorry, I'm on keto. I can't eat anything you've prepared, so I just eat the food, and then when you try to combine things like keto with not keto, you just get larger, which none of you are surprised that I like to eat. Like, that's, let's get that out of the way. So within this, what I've had to learn is that for me, I do enjoy reading. I do enjoy theology. I enjoy having my mind stimulated. But when I do so much of that during the week, if I do that during recreational time where I'm supposed to be restoring my soul, there are times when I will come out more drained because it's hard for me to read and not connect it to my work actively. Everything I read, fiction, gosh, you know, I'm reading Lord of the Rings again, so that'll probably work its way into some sermons. Like, and so, like, it's, it always connects that way. But for me, when I'm, when I'm healthiest and feel most rested, it's when I'm actually get, going out and doing something physical, working on a project, doing something with my hands that is different than the normal work I do. Remember, the idea of Sabbath in the Old Covenant was a day set aside to do something different than your normal work that stirs your heart and affections and, makes you, and brings you into the presence of God. Find those things in your life. I don't know what those are for you. I know for some of you, like for Alyssa, running is her thing. It will never be my thing. I hear runners talk about the runner's high, or you know, you just have to go far enough and you'll break through a wall. And I'm like, no. I, <laughs> I have never gotten to that point. I have run far enough that I feel like I'm driving holes into the sidewalk with my feet. And so I, I never have gotten to that point, but I've heard from people. This is something they do that clears their minds and they connect with God as they run. And I'm, that is fantastic. Go and do that. I'm still looking for something else because that one doesn't work. 
but find something that helps you connect with God's presence in your life. True rest will then free us also to engage on Jesus' mission. Listen, the church doesn't have the Sabbath day anymore. The Sabbath day was the seventh day, Saturdays, to set aside for the Jewish people. The church now celebrates, we gather together on Sundays. Why do we gather on Sundays, church? I heard somebody, I hope there's more than one of you that knows that that answer. If you're new, that's cool, you shouldn't know the answer, but some of you should. Sunday is the day that Jesus was raised from death to life. The church for 2,000 years has gathered on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection because the resurrection secures our ultimate rest. And so we don't need to be Sabbatarians that strictly legalistically regulate Sundays, but we, we need to change our thinking to say we've been given ultimate Sabbath rest in Christ, promised for eternity, given to our souls now, and so then we invest our day alongside of each other in a weekly rhythm and discipline committed together, and that this is something that brings rest for our souls. For me as, as your pastor, Sunday, I mean, by all, this is a pretty big work day for me. It's a full day usually. I have meetings and teach classes, and I'm preaching most Sundays in our church, but even in that work day, I will tell you that for me, this is, I still look at Sundays as my Sabbath day, because this is the day that I'm gathered with you, the church, and there's not a day in my week that I am more focused on Jesus and, and what he has done for us, and that brings me a restorative rest at the level of my soul, even if I'm physically exhausted and my voice is tired by the end of the day. And so we can, we need to think about that and get ourselves into rhythms and disciplines, and this is what spiritual disciplines are supposed to do for us is remind us of who God is and have us in regular rhythms of life that bring us into his presence. And so we do that even as we have the discipline of gathering together. So this is the invitation Jesus has to us tonight. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And church, I want to give you just a few minutes right now to spend some time in prayer on your own. And so I'm gonna, we're going to pause, because some of you right now, some of you right now are in a real good place and you're feeling rested. That's great. Take some time to thank God for that and ask him to help you see how to maintain that. For some of you right now, you've come in here weary and heavy laden and ground down and exhausted. Take some time in these few minutes to ask God to point out to you what it is that you're yoked to that's exhausting you. Maybe you know already. and Plead with him for forgiveness, but also plead with him for freedom. So take a few minutes if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can turn to Jesus tonight and have the weight that is on your shoulders lifted. And take his yoke upon you. His, you can come to him with all of your baggage, with all of your hurt, with all of your guilt, with all of the weight that you carry and lay it at his feet and say, Jesus, I need you. Save me. And you can trust that his promise is that if you come to him, you will find rest for your soul. And take a few minutes to pray and then I'll close us.
Father, we all come varying levels of weariness and tiredness and brokenness. And I pray not right now for those who have come to this place wondering how much more they can, they can keep going, knowing that their pace has ground them down, knowing that, that the circumstances of their lives have brought them to a breaking point. Father, I ask that you would breathe your spirit into their hearts right now to bring comfort and freedom and hope and life. We pray that you would expose within us the things that we've yoked ourselves to, the things that we're pursuing that we know can't satisfy. Father, would you forgive us? Would you help us to turn away from them? Would you, would you help us to leave behind our own self-indulgence that we know isn't helping and that we still engage? Father, I pray tonight that you, that you would move in our hearts. Pray for those here who, who haven't been walking with you, that you would, you would open their eyes to, to see what Christ has done for them, the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And to take the risk of trusting that he can actually bring rest for our souls. Father, we pray that you would shape this church family to be a community who comes alongside each other and encourages each other and breathes life into each other's lives and, and hearts and outdoes one another in, in showing honor and love to each other so that, so that we can stay in the fight together. We pray that with the time we have left today, with the gatherings that we have every Sunday, that this would be a time that would renew us and refresh us, that it would renew and refresh even those who serve regularly and self-sacrificially, that it would be a restorative act of worship to you. And we thank you that there's hope for us. In Jesus' call, that we can come weary and broken and heavy laden and find rest for our souls. It's in his name that we pray, amen.